Hi, everyone. I'm Adam Johnson. I'm a dad and a rare disease patient advocate, a self-proclaimed dadvocate. From the onset of symptoms and even after an eventual diagnosis, the isolation was almost as excruciating as the symptoms themselves. I felt so alone in so many ways. One of the most prominent ways in particular was as a parent. I knew I couldn't be the only person with a rare disease who was also trying to raise children, but it sure felt like I was. As I've learned, when there's not a specific community you're looking for, one that you need, sometimes you just have to make it yourself. It's taken a while, but I finally decided to do just that. And here we are. This is Parents is Rare, a series brought to you by Energy in Action. Living life as a parent with a rare disease can be quite paradoxical. We laugh and cry, we're vulnerable and scared, we're brave and afraid, all at the same time. Parents is Rare is a community where parents like me, who have a rare disease or chronic illness, can connect, share, support, and be supported. Welcome back to the Parents is Rare series of the Energy in Action podcast. I'm your host, Adam Johnson. Good to be back with you. This month's guest is Renuka Denukaran. As you will learn, Renuka is an international labor lawyer, a mom, a chronic illness patient, and many other things. She's also an incredible patient advocate for many conditions, such as EDS, POTS, long COVID, rheumatoid arthritis, sodonomia, just to, to name a few. She also focuses on marriage, parenting, and chronic illness on social media and in her advocacy work. In our conversation, Renuka was incredibly vulnerable and shared about her arduous journey to this point. She overcame some of the concerns or fears that she had initially about joining me on the podcast and and decided to come on and share her story, and I'm incredibly grateful. I'm sure we could have talked for hours, but as those of us in the rare disease or chronic illness world know, situations and conditions don't allow for that. So we got through what we could, and I'm really thankful that Renuka took the time to share her story with us, even during a very challenging time. I know I'm very appreciative to talk with and and learn from another parent who's working through life with these health challenges. It's why this podcast is so important and, and helpful for me. The support and the connection is just incredibly meaningful. I hope and, and think you will find as much benefit in this episode, as I did. It's a wonderful conversation, much to learn with and from Renuka. So with that, no further introduction needed for Renuka Dinukaran. Hello, Renuka. How are you today? I'm okay. I'm okay. How are you, Adam? I'm all right as well. I'm always hanging in there. And it's like when I first get those words out, how are you today? I'm like, when am I going to learn to stop starting these podcasts like that, right? Like, Because it's always so hard. But right here is a real safe space, and we can openly, honestly answer that question anytime. So if you throw that back to me, I'm going to be like, I'm kind of struggling a little bit today, Renuka. I'm, I'm having a hard time. Today, I would also say the same. I am kind of struggling. The past few weeks have been kind of hard, and some days are okay, and some days are near impossible. And when you look at them objectively, uh, you think, how did I get through those days, you know? So yeah, it's been a bit hard, but it's just a reflex thing to say, I'm okay. I don't know when that's ever going to go away. <laughs> I know. It's almost like we're trying to, I don't know, just fit in with the societal views that are there, right? Like the, just the usual, it's just the, hi, it's the, like the reflex, right? Like, how are you doing? Oh, good. How are you? Good. Okay. And then we move on with whatever business it is. But there's all, there's, there's so many times where I hear that and I'm like, yeah, I'm good. And I'm thinking back, I'm like, I'm not good. <laughs> yeah. It's the social conditioning to say I'm okay when someone asks you that, you know, and 
Yeah, I'm okay. I think it's mostly for the person who's hearing it and not necessarily for the person who's saying it. So yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, none, nonetheless, especially considering all of the, you know, the things that you're you're going through and working through, I really appreciate you taking the time to join me and to have this discussion. It's going to be so important and so valuable for for folks to hear and to connect with you and for us to share with our community. So thank you. I'm very nervous, very shy, but I would still like to speak with you, learn from you. And, and share my story in the hope that it could help someone or someone might have some answers for me. You never know. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's a great perspective. Oh my goodness. I love that last part there where it might be somebody hears it and is like, Hey, I've got this to offer. I've always kind of thought of it from a, I want to share my perspective and share my story in case it does help others, which you, you mentioned as well. And I'm thankful for that. That's a wonderful perspective though. I love that. So let's jump in here. And I was just curious if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about yourself. Um, you can kind of take that where, you, where you'd like and we'll just have a conversation from there. My name is Renuka Dinakaran. I am 38 years old. I'm from India. I live in the Netherlands, happily married to a wonderful man. And I have a son who is um, 10 years old and I'm an international civil service lawyer. Um, I have my own law practice. I had a wonderful life until uh, four years ago when Life just changed forever. Chronic illness became the norm in my life. I think of myself as a lawyer first, mother next, and a chronically ill patient third. Yeah, th these are the three things that take most of the time in my life, you know, my work, my son, and my body. For sure. And sometimes it's in that order and other times it's not. And that's the other kind of cruel and difficult thing for me, at least with the chronic illness and rare disease life. You never know which direction you're going to be pulled in and it gets really challenging to balance all of it. It can be really challenging on, on a very bad day when your child is also having a bad day. That's hard. But actually what's harder is when your child is having a good day and you're not able to take part in it because they don't necessarily remember the bad days. They sort of just let it go. But they always remember when you're not around for the good days. That they take it very personally, you know. So I always pray that my bad days should never coincide with my child's good days. Mm, yeah, <laughs> I feel that. I feel that. So you mentioned that about four years ago, Renuka was the, the time when, when things got really bad. I was just kind of looking through... You know your website and we've had some good interactions on twitter before and and some wonderful like chats that you you were so gracious to lead around parenting with pain and and so you know i've gotten to know you a little bit in that regard and some of the bits and pieces that i pick up are you know one was that you've kind of been been living with pain and anxiety for a for a long time for as long as you can remember i think your blog one of your blogs said and i, I was curious on that because it's just it's heartbreaking in addition to you know, those extra things that came on four years ago for you. And I normally talk about or ask about the diagnostic odyssey, right? Like, how did you come to this place? But for you, since it's been around for so long, how did this all start? I was a premature baby 38 years ago. And I, statistically speaking, I should not have lived. The odds of me surviving was, I think, very, very low. And my parents have always told me that from the day I was born, till the day they, I don't know, sent me off after I got married. The only thing that has, was consistent was that I was sick most of the time. I remember that I used to faint a lot. I used to hate missing school when I was sick. I remember being in pain quite often. And I remember 
I was a singer and I used to remember doing small concerts and I would ask the girl that sang with me, do your lungs burn? She would say, what? No, you know? So, and I had very difficult puberty. I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome, you know, and that later also was diagnosed as endometriosis. So I had bits and bobs of suffering and pain, but I didn't make too much of it because I think I was protected really well by my parents. They did the best they could, you know, to get me uh, medical care. Uh, and yeah, I, I mean, my father was pretty controlling, wouldn't let me do a lot of stuff, which I hated. I never explained why, you know, now I understand. He had a terrible fear of, of losing me. And uh, I understand that now as a parent, I would rebel and do things that I was not supposed to do. But the one thing that uh, also kind of was surprising was I never had a fracture despite falling down so often. That makes sense now because I was diagnosed with hypermobility, Ehlers-Danlos. My joints just moved if they were in a place that was going to make them break. They just moved. So it was so I collected small diagnoses, you know, PCOS and migraines. And the turning point was my pregnancy which was a surprise actually, because they told me my fertility issues were very bad and you know, got pregnant in three months uh, with no help. My pregnancy went okay, but towards the end, the back pain was abnormal and they couldn't do anything. And after I gave birth, they told me that I had degenerated discs. And then they said that there was a pelvic dislocation, but in a month, the dislocation was gone and they could not make any sense out of it with no treatment. And then I just threw myself into work and was working 15 hours a day to start my own law firm. I was the first Asian lawyer to do what I was doing and the youngest and possibly one of three women in the entire world. So yeah, as far as I'm aware, I am the first Asian woman to do what I'm doing. So it was pretty challenging. I had to prove myself. I had a young child. Uh, so I was just working nonstop and driving myself insane and had repeated infections and would work past through all of them. And in 2018, I remember I was in a conference in London and I'd been in the flight and I had such a bad, what I, what I then thought was a panic attack. And then I went to my hotel room and my heart rate was 150. But I got a lie down and it went down to like 100. And then I came back, I went to my doctor and she said, oh, you have anxiety, you're working too much. So she put me on benzodiazepines, you know. It was hard, it was, and I got off them in five weeks because I realized I was getting addicted. And after that, I could never fly without some kind of lorazepam or something like that, you know. And then in 2019, when 23rd of April, when we were on vacation in Black Forest, I woke up, uh, at, at the, around that time I realized that something was going on with my blood pressure and my heart rate and my oxygen. So I took some equipment with me and I woke up with some chest pain. 5.30 in the morning, I checked my blood pressure. It was high, like 220 over 120. And my heart rate was 165. We called the ambulance and they took me, they gave me some medicines, sent me back to the hotel. Next day, we decided to go back home happened again same time 8 30 in the morning i think so it drove nine and a half hours we came here and then it took 
one and a half years to get a diagnosis. I went to every possible specialist, cardiologist, endocrinologist, pulmonologist, every, every possible, everyone just, oh, you have asthma, you have anxiety. Uh, the only thing that they found out was, yes, you have hypertension and tachycardia, so we're going to give you a metoprolol beta blocker. No one told me that is contraindicated in asthma patients. So I was using an asthma inhaler that was causing tachycardia, and I was using a beta blocker that was making my asthma worse. So in 2021, uh, in 2020, in the pandemic, you know, things just got, kept getting worse and worse. I started getting very scared of being alone, and um, it was happening just around my periods. And my uh, GP said, you know what, I'm going to send you to an endometriosis clinic because I think you have premenstrual dysmorphic disorder and endometriosis. And yes, just after one scan, the specialist said, yes, probably not endo, but you have adenomyosis. That's what's causing this level of pain and bleeding. And, um, and it can cause the premenstrual symptoms to be horribly worse. It can make you it can make all your symptoms 10 times worse. And I thought, okay, I am not going crazy. That was the first, because during all this time, I subject myself against my will to sleep therapy, to cognitive behavioral therapy, to acceptance and commitment therapy. You know, I tried three therapists. And my third therapist who was working with a psychiatrist, she said, you know, I want you to see the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist spoke to my GP, and that's when they realized that, no, this is not psychological. Something physical is going on, most likely related to her menstrual issues. So that's how I went to the endometriosis clinic, and I got a diagnosis. Okay, great. Can you treat me? They said, okay, we can put you on birth control pill. Okay, fine. Ten days after I took the pill, I had intractable headache for seven days, with nearly going blind. It's there in my notes, but nobody told me. Apparently, I had idiopathic intracranial hypertension with disc edema in my eyes. No Dutch doctor told me. I discovered it a year later when I got my medical records translated. So I stopped that, and then the doctor said, okay, we can try like an IUD, you know. But at that time, I did not have an ALS Andos diagnosis. It could not do. My pelvic joints just kept dislocating and it was painful. So we gave up and I, I don't know if this is controversial, but I resorted to my homeopathist from, from India and also here. And in three months, my periods became regular. My bleeding was normal. I know people, some people don't believe in it, but it works for me and it doesn't for them, you know. So, and then I, I had a, I had gallstones for five years. I had a severe gallstone attack. There was a code black, hospitals were closed. So I had to wait six weeks to get a surgery. And just two weeks before surgery, my son had some problem in his shoulders and my husband was not available. So I took my son to, to see the GP and the GP just examined my son and she said, okay, I want him to wait outside. And then she said, can you undress? I said, what? And she looked at me and she said, you are both hypermobile. If for you, it's less visible. But for your son, he can, he can, with his, his elbows can go to the middle of his spine. I said, I can also do that. And I, sh and I showed her. And she said, I have never seen you. I 
reason because you've never examined me. This was just two weeks before my surgery. She quickly called the surgeon. She said, I don't have a definitive diagnosis, but you must keep this in mind. And the surgeon, to his internal credit, spoke with the anesthetist, adjusted the pain medication and anesthesia because we need more. It, it just blew my mind, you know? Years and years and years of symptoms, all the random clicks and the bruising, the dislocations, and two years of pain in my ribs. First, they thought it was my heart, and they thought it was, you know, costochondritis. And I, I just remember thinking, okay, I have a disease. It is real. It has a name. The bad part is my son also has it, possibly. Yeah, yeah. I got the surgery, and I was recovering well. And about 12 days after the surgery, I got COVID. Mm. And in two days, I was hospitalized. I couldn't eat. I couldn't drink. Treatment in the hospital was not good. I don't want to say anything more than that. I had to yell at them that I'm a lawyer and I will sue you if you don't give me IV fluids when my blood pressure was 90 over 60. And my husband couldn't, he was not allowed to visit me because my son had COVID at the same time. My husband didn't, my son had. So my husband was taking care of him. And I remember on my birthday, the nurses were singing me happy birthday. The doctors were discussing with themselves in Dutch, thinking I didn't understand that if she gets through the day somehow, it's okay. If not, we have to take her to the ICU. It's my 36th birthday. And I thought, this is how I'm going to die <laughs> in a strange room, in a place where I don't speak the language with no loved one around me. But I didn't. I lived. Yeah. I thought that was a good thing, but I wish I had. I wish I just had died. Because I thought the the worst part was done. I didn't know what was waiting for me. So I came home, and in a month, I went and saw my GP, um, two of them working together. They were excellent people. Uh, they did tell me, don't push yourself, rest. The only thing we want you to do is do pulmonary rehabilitation. But at that time, I, I tried low-dose naltrexone, you know. I got some energy. And everyone else around me was telling me, oh, come on, you have to exercise, you have to get your strength back. And I started walking and doing, and Eldian gave me a lot of strength. I crashed. I crashed. For the first time in life, I needed a wheelchair. And I thought that was temporary. But no. And then I started having hypoglycemia, random allergies. I had anaphylaxis for a food that I was eating since childhood. On my brother's wedding day, I didn't even travel to India for his wedding. My only brother, I missed his wedding because I couldn't fly. I was in a hospital with anaphylaxis. And after that, all I can remember in the next five months was a slow descent to hell with repeated trips to the ER and watching my marriage break down. Oh, in between all this, my marriage was going through a lot of problems. At one point, I, I felt like I was very, very alone in this suffering and journey. My husband had taken some time off to take care of me, but he also had to go on sick leave because he couldn't handle it, you know. The only thing that 
I could barely do was being a mother. I was obsessed. I stopped working. I gave away my practice, my clients to all my colleagues. I didn't know who I was. Am I a lawyer? I didn't feel like a wife. The only identity I had was I'm a mother, you know. I wanted to protect the child and I did everything humanly possible. He, my son is an amazingly well-balanced You cannot see uh, and him and say that he comes from a home filled with suffering. Impossible to say, you know. Uh, I mean, he's not all sun, sunshine and roses, but... Uh, <laughs> well, he's 10. Yeah, he's 10. But... <laughs> entirely resilient either. He's absolutely realistic, which is scary in a 10-year-old. Yeah. So, yeah, it was it was chaotic. And I, after the 17th trip to the ER that produced nothing, they told me I was anxious and stressed. I saw my husband break down on the floor and say, I can't do this anymore. I thought, okay, if I'm going to die, I don't want to die here. I want to go home and die with my parents. I didn't get clearance to fly. So I just started a GoFundMe page to collect 90,000 euros for an air ambulance because I couldn't fly any other way. And you will not believe this, Adam. We collected the money in a week or 10 days. Wow. Somewhere around 80,000 euros, I think. Yeah. Just a lot more than that. We put every bit of savings we had, you know, and uh, we still update our GoFundMe contributors every year, I think. Uh, my, my clients, my husband's friends, my friends, family, um, neighbors, my son's classmates' parents, uh, random strangers on the internet, the NEIS wide community, you know? Yes. It felt like the universe came together. And I went to my hometown. I landed in a hospital which was willing to take me. And there, a team of maybe 13 doctors over a course of time. In the first three days, I didn't have much hope. But on the third day, a doctor, uh, he's on Twitter, uh, Endocrine Karthik. Everybody should follow him. Yes, I saw you gave him a shout out the other day. I loved that. Yes, yes. He was my house MD. Mm-hmm. He listened the whole, to the whole story. And he asked, will you be willing to see this specialist, this specialist? And he also included a psychologist. I was, I was like, oh my God, are we going there again? But then he showed me a document with my symptoms and differential diagnosis, what specialty and what treatment. And I thought, okay, we are getting somewhere. Finally, the cardiologist came first. He diagnosed me with hyperadrogenic POTS. And he said, ideally, I would give you a beta blocker, but you have asthma, so I have to split your medicines. I have to give something for your heart rate, and something for your blood pressure. We're going to start one at a time. And then they diagnosed me with mast cell activation syndrome, you know, allergies. So they put me in a bowl of meds for that. In 10 days, I stood up and walked 100 steps. I, I cannot describe the feeling and and they set me up with uh, with a pulmonologist and the biggest discovery was when a rheumatologist came and saw me and he said I want to test you for rheumatoid arthritis and I told him what okay and he did some really good testing and he diagnosed me with, and then he explained to me that you don't have the classic symptoms of arthritis because you're hypermobile you will not have stiff joints because your joints can move. So so he did an old school technician bone scan that showed arthritis in every imaginable, all, uh, I think 20 of the 28 joints. And then he started me on 
steroids first and then immunosuppressants, you know? And like with a pulmonologist, did a six-minute walking test. I did two minutes on my oxygen, was at 84. Oh, goodness. <laughs> and they did every test imaginable. And the only thing that they could find was there was some profusion of normalities, but no clotting. And Anand was the first person in India, I think, to do microclot testing. He somehow found out the dye, did the tests, and there were microclots, but there were microclots in his blood also. And my cardiologist said, I cannot put you on blood thinners when I don't know, you know, you have EDS, you can bleed easily, you have endometriosis. I cannot put you on blood thinners as long as I don't see a sign for active clotting. He said, carry an aspirin with you. These are the signs of pulmonary embolism, you know. But otherwise, no. And I trust that man with my life. He is the only man to truly understand my heart. Mm -hmm. Not even my husband. <laughs> there is a man who has my heart. <laughs> How lovely to find a doctor that that the the one that knows the way to your heart. Yes, and knows your heart. Wow. And, and you even believe this? After seeing a little litany of bad doctors in the Netherlands, the the, the ophthalmologist just took one look at me, you know, and she said. You have this, you have this. I'm going to test you for this. I'm going to do this. And I mean, in one year with just a few drops, she reduced my migraine with no medication, you know? So, and then after five and a half months, we came back home. I started getting life a bit back, little by little back. By back, I mean, I was no longer entirely bed bound, but I was still homebound, you know? I got all my disability things set up and I started working again slowly. Um, that's when I started, you know, like parenting with pain to help other parents also uh, going through this. I, I started actively talking about marriage and how chronic illness can make or break it and sharing our own story of how counseling truly saved us. I, I also decided that I'm going to be selfish and I'm going to go away to India every winter for like three and a half months as my visa would allow. And I will try new sets of treatments every year, you know, and this year again. We tried some new medicines and there's some improvements. It, I don't know. It still feels hopeless because the journey started in 2019, got terribly worse in 2021. And this is 2023. I am almost exactly where I was 2019, which if you look at it objectively, people would tell me, yes, that's true, but you almost died in 2021, right? So that means you should be worse off compared to 2019. If you say you're almost as you were, like in 2019, that's an improvement. And all I want, I, I always tell those people is shut up. Yeah. Just, just shut up. Right. Because they're not the ones who've gone through it all, right? They don't know. And they're not, but even if they try to put themselves in your shoes, there's no comparison. You're the only one who knows what it's like to go through that and to battle and to struggle and to fight and and it's just, it's exhausting from my perspective. For me, it's exhausting. And, you know, you and thank you, first of all, for sharing and for your vulnerability and going through all of that. The thing that I'm just struck by is you go through and share that story. And it's not lost on me how challenging it is, at least for me personally, it takes so much emotional toll to relive even that. And so I thank you for sharing that in the hopes that, you know, it might help somebody else and or, and hopefully it's a both thing, right? Where Somebody could help you with the situation that you're continuing to work through here, Renuka, because there, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. And so as you're describing some of those things, I'm, 
I'm thinking back to one of your other parts in your blog where you were talking about, and I'm I'm thinking this might have been around that 2019 time frame where you were you mentioned that that there was a big period of time where you were either pretending to not have symptoms or you were pushing through or both. And so I'm wondering now, like in 2023, what, well, first, am I right? Was that around 2019? And then second, are you back to that phase now? I wish, but no. Yeah. Okay. First of all, I no longer pretend. Yeah. Nowhere close to it. Yeah. Yeah. For me on my, on my side there, I I relate in, in terms of, ironically, the timeline for me, 2019 was when symptoms started going. And what I did at the same, at the onset was pretend like I was fine and push through and tried to just fake it. Right. Like I knew something was wrong. Yeah. I knew something was going on in my body. And at the time I was also 35 years old and thinking no 35 year old has time for this. Right. I'm busy. I had my career and education. You were busy. You were a a lawyer, very successful doing the work that you were doing. We don't have time for that stuff. Like, (laughs) so we just pushed through until we couldn't anymore. And and I, I relate to the fact that like I can't I can't pretend anymore. I can't do it. It's not first of all, it's it's not healthy for me at this point in time. I have to own up to that reality as hard as it is, as challenging it is, is as painful as it is emotionally and physically. I just can't push through that that time frame anymore. And even looking back on where I was and where my family was at that point in time when I was doing that, it's hard. It's hard for me. I I get. I get sad. I miss that old me. I try not to live there, Renuka, but it, but I go there sometimes in my mind. I don't even remember that person anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do, but it feels like a different person. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing that you said in one of your other blog, I'm just like, yeah, the website for people that are that are um, curious about that, we'll put it in the show notes for everybody, Renuka, but it's, um, it's a painful identity.com. Yes. And there's all sorts of wonderful things on there, poetry and information about chronic illness. There's the parenting with pain, which you mentioned before. That's a great hashtag for any other parents that are, um, working through, you know, parenting while working through a rare disease or a chronic illness. It's a great hashtag to go and look up on the Twitter and check it out. I learned the hard way that you have to erase guilt from your vocabulary. Unless you do something wrong on purpose or you make a mistake, you know, that did not come from your body, you should not be feeling guilty. I, 99% of the time, I don't feel guilty anymore. Like if I promise my son something and I can't do it, I can't do it. First of all, I don't promise anymore. I provide options and time frames. So I say in the next four weeks, I will do my best to bake once with you. That's usually possible, you know, with the help of a friend or there's a very nice lady who helps once in a while to clean our house, you know, so um, with her help, I would do it. So those are the kind of things that I promise now. I've learned, you know, and I've also learned to pick my lane. Like I am in charge of his overseeing his health, you know, his emotional the discussions we have and his academics. His father is in charge of the logistics and his physical, uh, like sporting and physiotherapy and things that he has to do, or going out for a movie and things like that are with his father, you know? Uh, so basically, my husband gets the fun part, mostly. 
that's not true. That's not true because it's a boring logistical part. I had to figure out very early on where can I be indispensable. Well, and I, I think that's so valuable for folks to be able to hear and for you to be able to figure out and now share with others, because that's that's a big grappling point for, for me and for other people in the community. Yeah, I think it's a big word, but the best suggestion I have for your listeners who have chronic illness and are also parents is not necessarily parents. It could be, you know, it can be an uncle, aunt, anyone, especially parents, is pick one lane where you can contribute even on your bad days that no one else can do believe me there will be something if you're a parent there will be something make sure that with time your child connects you with that in a good way you know it's that way even if you're in a hospital you can face time and do that with your child that's that's what i did um so my son loves to read philosophy and I mean, he reads nature. It's, it's amazing. Well, I love the interactions that I see with, with you and your descriptions on, on Twitter sometimes when you're talking about it. And I can just, your son just seems so incredibly like, empathetic and caring and kind and smart. And I just, I, I don't know, I love the, the work that you and Ann are doing with the, you know, raising your, your son. You know, thanks for letting us take a little peek behind the, the curtain there. It's, it's, um, it's wonderful to hear. And I, I, I love to see uh, the, you know, the joy on your face when you do talk about them and the smile that, that comes because it's, uh, that, that's priceless. It really is. Yeah. I mean, on my really bad days when I don't want to live anymore, he's only reason. So he thinks I'm helping him, but the reality is he's helping me. Yeah. I feel that. I think being a parent when you have chronic illness the best kind of therapy that helped me was acceptance and commitment therapy. Just accept that it's going to be like this. Figure out a plan and commit to it. Well, I want to thank Renuka for joining me so very much. She brings such a valuable perspective and support to the entire chronic illness community, including to those of us who are trying to navigate all of these challenges while parenting with pain. We had to wrap up our interview and conversation abruptly, and as those of us in the rare disease and chronic illness community know, that is certainly what happens sometimes. We wish Renuka and her husband and son all of the best, and again, thank her for her time here. And I wanted to finish with this note. On Renuka's website, apainfulidentity.com, she has many incredible pieces of work, including poetry. And I personally identify with so many of those poems and blogs and resources. It's a really wonderful website, and I encourage everybody to check it out. We'll make sure that that, again, is linked in the in the show notes. But anyways, there was a, a, a poetry piece that was really um, impactful. And, and this particular piece was an entry, kind of like a blog about the poetry. And at the end, it says that poetry has taught me, Renuka, that living with chronic pain is an eternal dance between hope and grief. It is said that poetry is the language of truth. Poetry showed me what a hundred therapy sessions could not, that my pain is my truth. It's so powerful. It's so relatable to me and to so many others in the rare and, and chronic illness community. So I wanted to thank Renuka again for sharing 
her truths, her pain, her words with us. Um, I know that it's been a big help and a, and a comfort for me, even in times where she probably doesn't even recognize it or know it. So, uh, Renuka, you know, thank you again for for joining. Uh, hang in there. We we love you. We're supporting you and your family. Keep up the stellar work and uh, let let's stay in touch. I'm looking forward to connecting again soon. Thanks everybody for tuning in. It's been another wonderful episode of the Parents is Rare series of the Energy in Action podcast. I hope you uh, stay well and we'll talk next time. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Parents is Rare, a series of the Energy in Action podcast. Please be sure to leave a review and a rating for this episode wherever you listen and subscribe and listen to the Energy in Action podcast, where we talk all things Mito. Until next time, remember to show up, be vulnerable, supportive, and kind, and give yourself permission to feel along the way.